Well, it's really good to see you all. We'll go ahead and open up with a word of prayer uh, and ask God to bless our time together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, it truly is a privilege and a joy to come and break the bread of life together to open up your word and to study your truth. And Lord, there are many things in your word that are beyond our grasp. And yet you loved us enough to send your son to die to save us and to send your Holy Spirit to give us light and guidance. And so I pray that tonight as we open up your word and talk about these precious yet delicate truths, that you will give us hearts to believe, hearts to receive and understand, and a willingness to yield to your will for our lives. So please be with us in this time of study. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the last time we were together, I gave you guys a lot of things to think about and a lot of things to challenge yourself with. And I'll start by asking you this question. What does it mean to call Jesus Lord? When you call him Lord, what do you mean? Yes, sir. King? Is that what, what you got? To me, what it means to call Jesus Lord is to fully surrender to his will for your life. Good. Very good. So it means to be fully surrendered to His will for His life. Somebody said master. Who said that? Okay, master. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in the world we live in today, um, with the with the, all the social injustices that have taken place throughout history, we don't like to think about slavery at all. But the reality is, as Paul called himself a bond servant of Christ. When you read his letters, he called himself a bond servant of Christ. And what he's saying is, I'm a slave of Jesus. And so the truth of the matter is, to be a slave of Jesus is the most free person in the world. To be Jesus' slave means you are the most free person there is. It is those who are enslaved to sin that are actually not free, that are in bondage. Okay, And so to call him Lord uh, means to call him master, to call him king, just like y'all said, that's very good. Um, in, in kindergarten terms, He's the boss of me, right? When I was a kid and I didn't want to do something somebody told me to do, I'd say, I'm not doing that. You're not the boss of me. Well, the reality is, is when you truly yield to Him, when you truly surrender your heart to Him, when you truly give up, you're giving up your will for His will. And one of the things that you're going to see all through Scripture, one of the things that you will see all through Scripture, is a conflict between the will of man and the will of God. You're going to see that. As you read the Bible, that's going to be there's going to be a constant man doing what he wants to do and God telling man to do what he wants him to do and this constant conflict going on. And the mystery of that is even when man is going against God's will, he is still uh, making sure that God's will is done. And so in the next next either this class or the next time we get together we'll kind of see that if any of y'all remember the life of joseph and remember how wicked his brothers were they sold him into slavery as a kid and abused him and hated him because he was his father's favorite son and uh and so at the end of the story um after 20 years of being a slave and 20 years of being a prisoner um he was exalted to the throne he was the highest power in all of egypt other than the pharaoh and his own brothers wound up having to come and bow before him, just like he had dreamed that they would. Y'all remember that when he was a 16-year-old kid or a 13-year-old kid? He had a dream that his brothers would bow before him. And so what, what was God doing? God was showing him what was going to happen later on in his life. And the reality is the reason why prophecies are true is because they're God's will. There is nothing that happens in life that catches God by surprise. Nothing. Um, there's a, uh, 
a guy, a theologian named R.C. Sproul, that said it this way, there is not one radical molecular atom in all of the universe. There's not one molecule out of place in all of God's creation. The Bible said in Jesus that all the world consists. He, you know, y'all remember singing that song with his kids? He's got the whole world in his hands. Well, not only does he have the whole world in his hands, he controls the whole world. The weather, uh, the, the pestilence, the diseases, the sickness, all of that is within his control. And so when we read the Bible, we see this story of man and his evil intentions and then God taking the evil intentions of men and turning it around and using it for his good. In the case of Joseph, uh, what did he say at the end of the story when he rescued his brothers? He said, he said you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Remember Joseph told him that. He said, don't be angry at yourself. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So even though Joseph had to struggle with 20 years of slavery and hard labor and imprisonment and a lot of really bad stuff happening in his life, every bit of that was a part of God's plan for Joseph's life. And Joseph is the perfect example of someone who yielded. You never hear Joseph complain. Maybe if you want to say one time when he, when he, uh, he uh, discerned the, the meaning of the dreams of the baker and the, and the cupbearer, what did he say? When you get out of here, tell the Pharaoh to come help me because I ain't done nothing wrong. That's about the only time you ever hear him actually say anything to the negative. But the truth of the matter is, is Joseph trusted God and God's plan played out in Joseph's life. And there was not a lot of ugliness, a lot of family betrayal, a lot of brokenness, a lot of pain, and a lot of tears involved. But the reality is it wound up working for God's will. And then if you remember in the book of Acts, when Peter preached, he said that you, the Pharisees and the scribes and the rulers of, uh, of Jerusalem, uh, you and Pilate, it took it upon yourself to crucify the Son of God. Right? And in all of your, and there was a very wicked thing that they did. But the reality is the most wicked thing that ever happened on the earth, the nailing of Jesus to the cross, God turned that around and used it for the salvation of all of his people. You see? So why do I bring that up to begin with? Because throughout the Bible as you read it, you're going to see this battle going on between the will of God and the will of man. And not only will you see that battle going on in the scriptures, you're going to see it going on in your own life. And what you'll find is, is that just like a baby, a natural born baby, when a natural born baby is born into the world, a natural born baby is very self-centered. All they can think about is, my diaper's dirty, I'm hungry, I'm cold, uh, fix me. You see, it's all about me. And then when they get to in their, their two, three, four, five, six years old, it's still all about me. And, uh, and generally about the age of 50, we kind of start waking up to the reality it's not about me. But it takes a lot of maturing to realize that, doesn't it? And what did God created us to do? He, God created us to love Him and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And the first whole half of our life is about loving who? Me. And it's about my will, you see? And so what God does is He lets you have your will. He turns you over to your own desires. And in doing that, one of two things is going to happen. Either he's going to prove you to be one of his, or he's going to prove you not to be one of his. And if you're one of his, what's going to happen? You're going to let go of your will and yield to his. You see how that works? So there is this battle going on all through Scripture between the will of man and the will of God. And I would be willing to tell you that each and every one of you in this room would be would agree with me in saying this. How could I serve a God 
whose will can be overridden by His creation. Are you with me? In other words, God's will is going to be done. And if I have a God that I'm serving that my will can override His will, then who's really God? My will. You see how that works? And so, as we talk about these delicate subjects, we talked last time that we were together about God's eternal decree and how God had planned everything out and everything is predestined and preordained. That provokes us and it provokes my will. And the reason it provokes my will and the reason it makes me angry because if God is in control, I'm not. Are you with me? If God is in control, I'm not. And yet one of the things that the Bible clearly teaches us is if we will let go, right? We say that all the time, what? Let go and let God. If you would let go of your will and let God's will be done, then you would find peace, truth, hope, joy, love, kindness, patience, good. You'll find all of those things. It's when we seek to wrestle control away from God that things get out of control. Okay? So, we need to understand, when we talked about this last time we were together, two things that are very important. Number one, God is good. Okay? He is good. And number two, he's in control. All right? And if God is in control and God is good, that is good. Are you with me? All right? So, again, when we talk about the things that we're going to talk about tonight, your hair is going to stand up on the back of your neck and you're going to get angry at me and say things like this. You'll think things like this in your mind because I do too. God doesn't want puppets. God doesn't want robots. God doesn't want automatons. God wants people that are free. Right? Well, that is very true. But the problem is, each and every one of us in this room, right now, this very second, you are either a slave to God, or you are a slave to your sins. And isn't it funny that it's generally the people who are slaves to their sins that stand up and scream free will the most. But what about my free will? Well, what about your free will? It gets you into addiction. It gets you into idolatry. It gets you into sin. Because what the Bible teaches us is that God created us free. But in Adam, as soon as Adam and Eve turned from God, they lost freedom not only for themselves, but for the whole world. And if you've ever struggled with depression, if you've ever struggled with any kind of mental uh, problems, if you've ever struggled with addiction, you know without a doubt that your will is not free. You don't just choose to walk away from those things. They own you. And they tell you what to do. They make you a puppet. You see? So each and every one of us in this room are either going to be a puppet to our own will... Or we're we going to be God's free slaves. That sounds funny, doesn't it? A free slave. But what has He set me free to do? He's set me free from sin and self, and He's changed my heart and given me the will and the desire to walk in His light instead of walking in darkness. He has set me free. 
you who were dead in trespasses and sin, He has made to uh, alive together in Christ. Right? He set me free. He gave me a new heart. He washed me clean from all of my sins and all of my self-will and all of my self-righteousness and all of my self-sufficiency and made me His Son. And now what is He doing? The rest of my life is going to be about me yielding to His will and becoming more like His Son, Jesus. That's what the rest of my life is about. He set me free so that I can now be conformed to the image of Christ. That's called sanctification. The process of Him making you more Christ-like as you live. And what's happened is now that my will is free, I delight in His law. Do I still break it? Yes. Because that old dead man that I used to be still has a will. And he's still constantly battling against the free man that I am now. But what we learn is is that God's will is going to be done. And God's will will be done in your life. And God is in control and nothing happens outside of His control. And God is good. And God is in control. And that's a good thing. Does that make sense? So I want to finish up with some preliminaries of our introduction to the decree of God. And so turn with me in your Bibles um, to the book of Romans. Let's go to the book of Romans. And uh, we're going to look at Romans chapter 8 for a minute. Um, Bless you. Bless you. All right, so Romans chapter 8. The book of Romans is one of my favorites. And Romans chapter 8 is basically talking about life in the Spirit as we live for God, as we walk with Him. And um, I want to talk, I want to start in verse 18 of Romans chapter 18. It says this. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is revealed to us. For the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery uh, to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Alright, so in that last verse there, 21, again look what it says, so that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So what he's fixing to show us here in just a second, these next verses, is how the whole of creation, that's me and you, the birds, the bees, the flowers, the trees, everything, all of the universe, the whole creation, because of Adam's sin, because Adam turned from God and rejected God's will and chose his own will over God's, now the whole earth groans and is in travail and pain and sorrow. And because we're Adam's kids, we suffer along with it. So watch what he says there in verse... 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only that, but we also, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, 
waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. Okay? So what does he say? The whole earth groans in travail. What does it, what does it mean to say that... It's, he, he used the term of childbearing. What does that mean? Pain. It's pain. Yeah. It's horrible pain. And it's, and it's pulsing and it gets more and more rapid as we go along, right? And so what's happening? This world is under a curse and every one of us know it. The birds, the bees, the flowers, the trees... You ever gone out and just sat in the woods and heard the trees creaking and groaning, right? Look at all the dead leaves on all of the trees, right? The trees are dying along with us. And the birds and the bees, the stars are falling out of the sky. And you can just, you just know in you that this is not how this world was supposed to be. You just know that. And it's because, because this world is under a curse. And so what did he say? Paul said, I do not consider the sufferings that I'm going through right now to be even worthy to be compared to the glory that is being revealed to the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected in futility, not willingly. Right? Do you think Adam was happy when God told him that from now on you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow to feed your family and that you dust you are and dust you will return? Do you think that Eve was happy when he said you're going to have to have babies and it's going to hurt really bad? Do you think the devil was happy when he said from now on you're going to crawl around on your uh, your belly and eat dust? You you were the archangel, the highest of all the angels, and now you're lower than the worms? No. It was a curse that God placed on this world. And every one of us feel it. And Adam and Eve felt it immediately. Can you imagine the, the thought of your firstborn killing your secondborn? You see, and the whole world from now until... Till God comes back is going to be under that weight and under that groaning and under that pain. And so God's will is for us to go through those things. To go through those sufferings and go through those pains. Y'all remember the story of Job? What was the point of the story of Job? Huh? To test his faith. Huh? Yeah, to test or a better word to say would be to prove his faith. The devil said, he don't belong to you and I can get him to cuss you. And what did God say? No, he's mine. And he would never curse me. Do whatever you want to him. Just don't kill him. And God allowed God allowed the devil to kill his ten kids and take away all of his worldly possessions. And leave him diseased and crippled and suffering. That's exactly right. He never did curse God. Why? Because the point was God was trying to show the devil that when you belong to God, when you are a promised child, when you are His kid, the the promise will stand. Even if all of the temporary world around you collapses, that promise is going to last in you. And so what is Paul saying right here? Um, some of you in here are a lot younger and some of us are a little bit older and my body is beginning to creak and I'm having to wear glasses and, and my back hurts and, and my, my teeth bother me and just all kind of things are falling apart, right? And the reality is it's not going to get any better. I'm going to get worse, right? And I'm going to try to tell you young people things and give you advice and you're not going to listen to me because you're hard-headed and you're going to do what you want to do. And the world's going to just keep turning and turning and turning. But the reality is, I have a promise. 
And that promise is based on the shed blood of Jesus Christ and what He did on that cross for me and the fact that He is my high priest interceding for me right now in heaven. And because He is in control and because He is God and because His will is going to be done, I have hope. If my hope and my joy and my peace is based on my will, I'm in trouble. It's just like basing your hope and your your joy and your peace on your emotions or your circumstances. You can't do that, guys. You've got to look beyond this broken and busted world we live in. You've got to look beyond our fallen nature. And you've got to look to the promise that is yours in Christ. And remember that it's His will being done. And again, if God is good and God is in control, that's good. Amen? All right. So, um, I want you to... uh, We're going to go... Um, let me see if I can flip over one more page and to uh, Romans 8 and let's look at Romans 8.28 and this is a verse that a lot of people quote and a lot of people when they quote this verse will actually bring up the story of Joseph I bet every one of y'all in this room matter of fact I would be willing to tell you that I bet probably this week one of y'all's teachers has probably quoted this verse We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose, right? How many of y'all have heard that verse verse before? It's one we claim as Christians. All of us claim it. But what is it really saying? We. Who is we? The believer. That's very important to remember. If God has graced you with salvation and His Spirit lives within you and you know Him, that is a blessing that most of the world does not have. And they don't understand the hope that is in you. What you can say is, I know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the call according to purpose. Now, did it say we know that... Let me, let me rephrase it and see if this makes sense. We know that God causes all good things to work together? Is that what it says? No. It says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. So what that means is, even the bad things that happen in this world around us are being turned around and used for His good. Everything works for His good. And if you are walking with Him, that's good. Because He's good, He's in control, and everything's working together for our good and His glory. Everything. Right? And so you may be sitting here tonight sad that you're not at home. You may be afraid your friends or your family or maybe your kids or your wife or somebody's doing something and, and you don't get to go be with them and you're kind of sad about that night. Well, it's God's will for you to be in that chair right there today. Right? And what you'll find is, is if you trust Him and walk with Him, you'll see how it works out for your good and for your family's good. And so in every situation in life, I'm supposed to be able to yield to God's will and say, okay, God, this is your will for my life. One of the things that angers me, listen, God is a healer, guys. He really is. He can heal. But He doesn't heal on my command. I can't run around and tell people to be healed and expect God to honor that. God heals according to His will, not mine. And one of the things that aggravates me so bad is these faith healers that will tell somebody who has like stage 5 cancer that 
It's God's will for you to be healed. Well, what happens when they die? What is the family that was just told it's God's will for them to be healed going to think about God? Well, if God's will wasn't able to heal them, then what kind of God is He? Do you see how that works? So what we need to understand is, is that even when we stand over the casket of a loved one, that's God's will. Does it hurt? Yes. Did Jesus weep? Yes. Should we weep? Yes. And should we grieve? Yes. Because we're human. And what did Paul just tell us? Our bodies, our whole of who we are is groaning in travail at this world that we live in. So there's nothing in the world wrong with grieving. There's nothing in the world wrong with being sad. There's nothing wrong in the world with asking God why. As long as I'm seeking His will in the answer and not rejecting His will in the answer. And we do that. We ask Him questions sometimes because we already know the answer and we just don't like it. So we just keep asking more questions. So he says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And then here's where it gets a little tougher. It says, For those He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And these He predestined... He also called, and these whom He called, He also justified, and these whom He justified, He also glorified. Do y'all remember the verse of Scripture, I believe it's in Peter, where the Bible terms Jesus as the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world? Have y'all ever read that verse before? I think it's in Peter. He says He is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus actually died on the cross before the world was ever created? No, we know that Jesus died on the cross about 2,000 years ago. But what does it mean when it says He is the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world? What it means is before God ever said, let there be light, there was already a plan in place. Before it ever happened... And God's plan and God's purpose and God's will is going to play out and there's nothing that can change it. So in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit's eyes, before there was ever let there be light, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit knew that the Father was going to send the Son, the Spirit was going to empower Him, and that the Son was going to die on that cross to save His people. Like, it was as good as done. In the same way that if you're in this room today and you have been saved, you're a born-again, blood-bought child of God, your eternity is as sure as that empty grave in the room. It's going to happen. And you can fight against it, but you don't want to because He's changed your heart. And it's going to happen. You will be His. Right? It's, um, we term it irresistible. You can't resist His grace. You can't. If you're his, he's going to conform you to the image of his son. And you're going to go and it's going to be a kicking and screaming process. It's not going to be fun. And he's going to have to burn away all the dross and all of the waste and all of the self-will and the self-righteousness and the self-sufficiency. But if he's at work in your life, it'll be evident not only to you but everybody around you. If he's at work in your life, you'll be able to look back 10 years from now, not 2 days from now, but Ten years from now, you'll be able to look back and say, Wow, 
His grace really does work. And wow, he really didn't know what he was doing. And wow, but for the grace of God, I would be a mess. And wow, even though I rebelled and kicked and screamed and, and tried to walk away from him, he didn't let me. And I thank him for that. You see? He's got me in his hands. Just like every molecule and every atom in the universe. And that should be a comfort. Because why? God is good. And God is in control. And that's good. Okay? So, I want you to look over at those things again, what he said. Number one, he said, he foreknew them. Alright? Now, a lot of people will tell you that what they believe is that God looked down through the corridors of time to see who would believe in Him. And so He foreknew them because He knew that they were going to choose Him. But when it says that God foreknew us, it's not talking about our actions. Although God does know our every action that we're ever going to do before we ever think it or say it or feel it. He does know that. He already knows what you're going to be thinking about tomorrow morning when you wake up. He knows what you're going to have for lunch tomorrow. He knows how many breaths you have left in your nose. He he knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows. He knows you inside and out. But God called us because He foreknew us. And when it says He knew us, it's it's the word yada. Anybody from up north, yada, yada. Y'all heard somebody say that before, yada, yada. Who knows what that means? We've talked about it before. Anybody remember? What does it mean to say yada, yada? Hmm? No, that's not what it means. Yada, yada means, I know, I know. The word yada means no, I know. All right. So, in the very first of the Bible, when Adam knew his wife Eve and conceived a son, it's the word yada. It's an intimate and spiritual bond. So when it says that God foreknew you, what that means is He knew you by name. He knew you because you were His kid. He's known you. Remember, remember what did Jeremiah say? Before you formed me in my mother's womb, you knew me. Now think about that, guys, ladies. Think about what God knew I was going to do with the life that He gave me and how I was going to abuse it and take advantage of His love and His mercy and His grace and spit in His face and curse Him and hurt people and reject Him. And yet He still loved me and His hand of grace was still on me all along. And even though I tried to fight Him, even though I tried to run, He said, Nope, I love you too much. I'm not going to let that happen. You know why? Because Jesus is the Good Shepherd. And he don't lose sheep. Jesus has never lost one of his sheep. Never. Not one. Alright? There's nobody in hell today that Jesus is up there going, Man, old Charlie slipped right through the cracks. I just, I couldn't save him. The good shepherd does not lose sheep. And he's good. And he foreknew you. He knew you before time. And it wasn't his actions that he knew. It was that personal, spiritual relationship with you. She's one of mine. He's one of mine. I knew him. And so if he knows us, what did he do next? He predestined us to be... Yes, Joan? It was Revelation 13 and 8 where the Lamb was slain. 
Revelation 13.8. Thank you very much. The Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Yeah, that's what it says. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Joan. I appreciate that. Joan always keeps me in check, and I appreciate that a lot. <laughs> All right. I was saying it was First Peter. All right. So, uh, he would. We were for. He foreknew us. He predestined us. Now think about that. What does that mean? And now again, this is where it's going to get. It aggravates me to say, you mean he predestines people for hell? He predestines people for heaven? God is good, and God is in control. All right. And now you'll say this: is what you'll say? Well, well, what about all those people going to hell? They don't have no choice. Or why do we even go out and preach and share the gospel with people if if he already knows who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved? Why do we even preach? Why do we even share the gospel with people? If they're going to be saved, they're going to be saved. Why bother? See, that's that's what we say in our self will. But the reality is. A, a part of God's plan and a part, part of God's purpose is for His children to share His promises with the world. Why? Because it's the means that He uses to prove who are His. Who does the gospel get shared with? All who hear it. And who receives it? All of those who are His. Now, I can't go around and sell, tell you who's predestined. That's not my place. So, whoever will believe in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So what does He command me to do? He commands me to go and share the promise with who? Everyone. And then, you know what I get to do then? As His child and His slave, as His servant? I get to share that promise with people, and I get to watch God keep His promise. Because His promise is is that when His Word goes out, the work of His Word and His Spirit is going to save all of those that He knew, that He foreknew, that He called, that He predestined. It's going to save them. And it's not my choice. And it's not it's not my place to convince someone. The Gospel is not me appealing to your will. The Gospel is proclaiming the will of God. Repent and be baptized. For the forgiveness of sin. He died on the cross to save broken men and women like me and you. So believe Him. And you know what happens? When you share His words with people, the Holy Spirit goes around and says, He's mine. He's mine. He's mine. She's mine. You see how that works? And who's doing the choosing? God. Because if it was left up to me and you, we'd still be in the bushes hiding naked with fig leaves all over it was God that came down to the garden and said, Adam, where are you? And that's what He has to do with every one of His children. He has to come find us and save us. And so you say, well, if, if people are predestined for help, well, the reality is, in Adam, in Adam, how many people deserve hell? Every single one. So if God... That's not fair. Well, if God did what was fair... Or the word just is actually what you're trying to say when you say fair. If God were to do what was just, how many of us would go to hell? All of us. us. But not only is God just, God is also merciful. And for those that He foreknew, that He predestined, that He conforms, 
He reaches down into a world full of people that don't deserve it and He puts His grace on those He chooses. Ever thought about the fact that when Noah and his family got in that ark, there was only eight people that survived on the whole earth? Only eight. How many people did God show His grace to? Eight people on the whole earth. And you know what? He's God. And He can do what He wants to because it's His creation. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? Three people got out of there. One look back. But you know what it's, You know what the angel said? Get out of here because I can't destroy this place until you're gone. Yes, ma'am. I have a question. Um, so when we're born into sin, right, we don't really have that choice. We're born into it, right? Yes. It, it, the Bible tells us that we are slaves to sin. We are born in that under the curse. So when God saves us, He's actually saving us from that curse. He reaches down in His grace and sets me free from the curse of sin and, and death. And sets me free to be alive and to live for Him. So it, that's what the act of salvation is: is setting you free from the bondage and the slavery of sin and death and the curse. So the people that He doesn't save, they don't really have a choice because they're born into sin already. No one—that's exactly right. No one actually has a choice until His grace works. Because if you were left, in other words, if we were left up to our natural choice we would always rebel against Him and reject Him. So who would do that? All of creation. The whole world. And so if you're here today and you believe, it's because He set you free. Remember, the Bible calls salvation regeneration or the new birth. He gives you a new heart. He sets you free to believe. Yes? So you don't believe in that's exactly right. Yeah. Unbelief is a sin. Right? And to not believe means that you are still a slave to your sin and yourself. So what is the remedy for not believing? Believe. Yeah, believe. that's exactly right. <laughs> to believe. Now, but watch. Salvation comes by faith. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing the Word of God. So how are you ever going to believe? You hear His Word. And... Remember, He has to open your ears and open your eyes and open your mind and open your heart or you'll never hear it. It's a hard saying to think about. Did you know that Jesus told the Pharisees that said, having ears to hear you do not hear and having eyes to see you do not see? And it was prophesied in Isaiah that you were going to be that way. That you were willfully going to keep your eyes closed and willfully going to keep your ears closed and stop your ears and ball up your fists and grind your teeth. That's what uh, um, Stephen said when they were about to stone him to death. They say, he said, you constantly resist the Holy Spirit. Peter had just been preaching the gospel to him, and what, what was their reaction to the gospel? They bought up their fists and grinded their teeth and stoned him to death. They killed him. So the whole world is bound in unbelief. And you were too, until God set you free. Now, we're going to have to wind down because we're running out of time. But think about this. When you get to heaven one day and you fall on your knees before Jesus, are you going to say, 
I'm so thankful that I believed in you? Or are you going to say, I'm so thankful that you saved me? You see? So my salvation is not going to be focused on my choice, my will. It's going to be focused on God's will. And why is that beautiful? Because God's will is always done. And if I'm His child, I can rest in that. I can lay my head down on my pillow tonight and know that the God that created the universe loved me enough to die for me and save me. And that does not make me proud. It does not make me boastful. It makes me humble and broken. Yes? Okay, so my question is, could you be set free twice? Say, for instance, as a small child who grew up in church and you believe as a child, maybe you got over an addiction, you kind of lost touch with God, you necessarily believe. So was you always still set free, or when you maybe find God again, you get set free again, or how does that work? That's a, that's a great question. So I, I want to repeat what you said just because so, I'm recording this, and I want a lot of people to hear what you just said. That's a really important question. So can I be set free like a lot of different times? So remember, the process of sanctification is the process of becoming more Christ-like. The reason that you are saved, the reason that you are a believer, is because Jesus died on the cross and paid for all of your sins and secured your eternity. All right? And the reason that you are a believer is because the Holy Spirit has now come down and changed your heart. Now, I believe that a lot of kids at, at a very young age make emotional choices. They run down to an altar because they don't want to go to hell or they don't want to miss the rapture. All right? I think a lot of children are, are programmed to that emotional stuff. And the reality is the salvation is not an emotion. Now, your emotions are affected by your salvation, but a lot of people when they're young, it's a selfish choice. It's about me. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to miss the rapture. I don't want to die. You see how that works? And I think in a lot of those cases, God is actually at work in their lives. And for some of them, I think that they're actually justified at that point. The moment that they have faith to believe. But their faith is small. And so the salvation process, we we so want to just check a box and say, I'm saved. But the way that Paul put it is, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. So what that means is, when God regenerates my heart and I am born again, I am saved. He has sealed me in His promise with His Holy Spirit. But there is a lifelong process of me being more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And then one day at the end of time, what's going to happen, I'm going to get a new body to go along with the new person I am on the inside. That's going to be the climax of my salvation is when I'm glorified, when I'm given a glorified body. Okay? And so what I think happens when you say, can you be, uh, you know, can, can this thing go in waves? I think what you're seeing is, I think what you're seeing is, you're seeing a child of God who is so slowly and, and surely being drawn towards the Father. And it looks like a roller coaster ride. Because there's a battle going on between what? Your will and His. And so... Again, I think that the process of sanctification is a constant battle between my will and His will. And the beauty of it is, whose will is going to win in the end? Good. And if if I trust Him, what's going to happen? I'm going to more and more be able to call Him Lord and mean it. Right? He said that before. He said, there's many people saying to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we baptize in Your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Lord, 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 Lord. And what is He going to say? Depart from me. I never, what? Yachted you. 
there wasn't that intimate knowledge. They said they believed in Him. In John chapter 2, Jesus it says this, And many people believed on Jesus in that day, but Jesus did not commit Himself to them because He knew what was in the heart of men. That's in John chapter 2. You can read that at the very end of the chapter. So what is it saying? These people are saying, Oh, I believe in Him, but Jesus wasn't believing in them. Because it's only a person with a regenerated heart that can truly believe. And so what I think you see happening there... So. Um, you know, it, it, it happened in my life. And so at eight years old, I ran down an aisle because I didn't want to go to hell. My grandfather was actually preaching on hell. And I ran down an aisle crying and prayed and asked Jesus to save me so I wouldn't go to that dark place where I couldn't see my hand in front of my face and I was going to burn forever. And I do truly believe that I was saved at that time. But there came a time in my life at about almost 40, I'm 51 now, about 11 years ago, where I wasn't running from hell. I was running to Jesus. Like He was my Savior. And I knew it. I finally knew it. I, after about 35 years of just spitting in His face and abusing His grace and His mercy in my life, His Holy Spirit finally convinced me. He, he turned me over to my own desires and my own passions and I almost killed myself. I almost died in addiction and, and just uh, in a mess. And in, a, in about a 35-year period, He finally gave me the eyes and the heart to see how beautiful His grace and His mercy is. And I was able to yield to Him. And it wasn't me, it was Him. The whole time. And, that, and that, so, I, I, how many, I bet you all got that little footprint thing around here, like there were four, two, four foot sets of footprints in the sand, and why there are only two, you left me, and what did He say? No, I was carrying you. Well, the reality is, your eternal salvation, there's only two footprints the whole time. Like, He's the one carrying you along. And it will, it will, it will come out in your life. Your, your emotions and your feelings and who you are will change and you will become, it will become evident to you and to the people around you that God is saving you. But always, never forget, it's His work. Salvation is His work, not yours. It's grace. Through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So your grace, the grace He gives you is a gift. The faith you have, the ability to believe is a gift from Him. And your salvation is a gift from Him. And what's so good about that? He's not going to take them away. They're yours. So enjoy them. Amen? Amen. So um, next time we're together, we'll kind of get more into this lesson. Um, if I, I do I do want to challenge you to, to take the... Uh, the papers I've given you, there's biblical text at the end of each statement just so that you can see that they're not just drawing this out of thin air. They're actually using a scripture to, to define it. Yes? The young lady we were praying for, for her salvation, um, she never she made, never made a profession of faith um, and she's actually left to go back home. Um, but she is is definitely God is at work in her life, Amen. and uh, her her grandfather is a, a pastor, right. and uh, and I think what's happened is she's about fifteen, fourteen, or about fifteen years old, and she's just get has gotten to the age where she's rebelling, and I think that's why she wound up at, at the clinic, and um, we're hoping that she's going because you know preachers' kids are the worst. <laughs> if you're a preacher's kid or a police officer's kid, right? Yeah. Police kids, 
bad kids. Why? They think they got the law on their side. And why do preachers get so bad? They think they got God on their side, right? And the reality is, um, I think that I'm most certain that God is at work in our life. She's asking all of the right questions and asking. Um, but one of the things that we do is we never push people to make a decision. We never push people to ask Jesus into their heart. We just keep sharing the promises of God with them and let God work it out in their heart, and then they'll just come. They'll come to the realization themselves. Because if I can, if I can convince you to believe in Him, that means I can convince you not to believe in Him too. When God does the convincing, you don't change. Amen. Father, thank you for this time we've had together. I thank you for this group. Uh, they, uh, I know that you're working in each and every one of their lives. I know that they still have their struggles, their doubts, their misunderstandings. Uh, and still have a lot of things that they're dealing with in their lives. Guilt, shame, past decisions. But you are a God of grace, and your blood has covered all of those sins, and your spirit is able to help us to come out from uh, the muck and the mire. And so I pray, Father, that you will help them and place all of their feet, put plant their feet firmly on, on the rock, your Son, Jesus Christ, so that they can stand in, in the power of His love and His forgiveness and His grace and His mercy. And so be with them. Help them to go. And help us all to, to think about what a special salvation it is that the God who created us and puts breath in our nose loved us enough to come and die and save us. So thank you for all you do for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.